You're listening to episode 11 of the Practice Brave podcast. Welcome to the Practice Brave podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Battles, a strength and conditioning coach and the founder of Pregnancy and Postpartum Athleticism. The Practice Brave podcast brings you the relatable, trustworthy, and transparent health and fitness information you're looking for when it comes to coaching, being coached, and transitioning through the variables of motherhood and womanhood. If you're a pregnant or postpartum athlete or a coach working with this population, this show is specifically designed for you. All right, let's get started. On today's episode of the Practice Brave podcast, I interview my friend and colleague, Brett Bartholomew. He is the founder of Art of Coaching, which is a coach development company, and he is just an overall great strength and conditioning coach. And this episode, I feel, is game-changing for conversations surrounding leadership, coaching, program design, and just getting overall buy-in for our clients. So if you are a coach or leader in any capacity, this is absolutely an episode that I think that you will enjoy. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Practice Brave podcast is brought to you by strength.com and their line of sports nutrition products built by strength. One of the things I love about this company is that all of built by strength products are clean, natural, and NSF certified for sport, meaning they are third-party tested to ensure that what's listed on the nutritional panel is only what's in the product and nothing more. This is true of less than 1% of the supplements that are out there today. Even better, these products are safe for pregnancy and breastfeeding. You can learn more about our sponsor at www.briannabattles.com backslash built by strength. Hey guys, welcome back to the Practice Brave podcast. Today, I'm here with my friend and colleague, Brett Bartholomew, and he is the founder of Art of Coaching. And I'm really excited to have him here today to talk about different strength and conditioning principles and also just all-encompassing leadership skills for coaches and professionals alike. So Brett, thank you so much for being here with us. Always a pleasure, Brianna. Thanks for having me. So Brett, let's give people a little bit of background on who you are, what you do, what you have created. Sure. Straightforward is I've been a strength and conditioning coach for 15 years, worked predominantly in the professional athlete space, although I worked in collegiate athletics as well. Overall, worked with athletes from about 23 sports and over 40 countries. And now I'm starting to transcend a little bit into the coach development and leadership development space as well, simply because as much as I love coaching athletes and that's home and hearth to what I do, we also see some major deficiencies in coach education out there as well since so many people have taken to technology and niche down programming strategies, they seem to have forgotten that communication is the core piece of it. So I'm a strength coach. I'm a business owner. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I mean, it sounds like you got a lot going on there, but I'm excited to talk to you a little bit about just like periodization, but then also get into some of those conversations about communication. I did go to his workshop, you guys, where it's called The Apprenticeship, and I would highly recommend going. So I will be linking to his website in the show notes, but uh, it was a really helpful thing for me to attend and sit back and just try to listen, but also get extremely involved and vulnerable in um, different scenarios. So that is something that he does, a huge component of his business. And I think it's a missing piece for so many different coaches. So I do just want to say that initially, it was really helpful for me to go to that. And that was pretty recent. Yeah, well, we were happy to have you. It was a lot of fun. And I think that even made it better that you're somebody that's so eager to get out of your comfort zone, where I think so many people out there, especially in the age of the instant expert, they're, they can be very good at insulating themselves. And 
you know, it's funny, people talk about vulnerability, people talk about being open, but it's completely different when you have to do that around your peers. Because to give you guys listening some insight, we do a lot of role playing, a lot of uh, subject matter specific improv, because life is improv, you never really know what is going to happen. And so there's a lot of evaluations and you got to watch videos of yourself on camera. And so it gets tricky, but Brianna was a champion and went through it with a lot of grace. <laughs> I would not say a lot of grace. Um, but... as, much, as much grace as you could muster <laughs> in the moment. Yeah, you guys, it was great because I think as coaches, we are put in situations where we try to be right all the time and do the right thing. I um, mean, there's a lot of pressure to perform. There's a lot of pressure to to not mess up, especially in the spotlight, whether that's just in a class that you're coaching or at a much greater level. And so being put in a position to fail and to rethink how you could have gone about that conversation or that scenario differently was really helpful from a professional development standpoint, but also just your personal development. So that is really something that I feel is missing in coaching. And I know we're going to be talking about programming right now but so much of our programming can be improved by how we are communicating in the first place, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to understand all aspects of this. You know, it's not an art versus a science. It's not training versus communication. Everything is integral. And so, yeah, I'm anxious to dive in and hopefully help some people out. All right. So, Brett, what are three themes or components of programming that you think coaches should focus on? Yeah, I think the critical ones that I always tell people is everything you do needs to be ground-based, multi-joint, and multi-planar. And what each of those mean, ground-based, obviously life, sport, most of what we do happens with your feet on the ground. So we need to choose exercises where proper force transfer is taking place from the bottom up. You know, that's not saying that machines are evil. It's not saying that, you know, you can't have alternative strategies of loading. It just says the majority of what you should do, if you want to look at that classic kind of 80-20 principle, should be ground-based movements. Uh, Multi-joint, fairly self-explanatory in that these are movements that train large muscle groups. So again, you don't want to be black and white or binary in your thinking. It doesn't mean somebody can't do a bicep curl or a lateral shoulder raise or a tricep push or pull down. It just means we need to focus primarily on things like squats, deadlifts, pull-ups, push-ups, overhead presses, things that give us the most bang for our buck, both systemically and from a temporal timing standpoint. And then finally, and I think this one's probably the one that's most missed, is multiplanar. Life happens so much in the sagittal plane, right? And so we tend to get caught in these things as well. People very rarely do anything in the frontal plane, whether that's a lateral lunge or any kind of bounding type exercise. And then I think people also forget about the transverse plane, the rotational element. Um, Sure, you might walk into a health club and see people doing quote-unquote Russian twists with a medicine ball. But I'm talking about true transverse plane movements. So, you know, whether it's taking a a rope and doing a rotational lift or a rotational chop, which I'm happy to describe if we need to, different versions of rotational overhead slams, um, all kinds of different things. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to be able to express force in a variety of different ways, in a variety of different loads, in a variety of different positions. And so those are the three hallmark tenets that I follow with the majority of my programming. No, I love it. And I have so many coaches that are fairly new to strength and conditioning or, or CrossFit or whatever it is that they're trying to do. They're starting a coaching business, but they're still really overwhelmed and intimidated by just basic program design and periodization what would you tell a new coach who's struggling to sit down and write the quote unquote right program for their athlete? 
Yeah, it's a valid question. It was one that I got often enough that I ended up doing a webinar myself on it. I think the critical thing is you've got to ignore the noise and build on foundations. Again, think push, pull, squat, hinge. You know, what are the major things that we're doing here? And also, I think you have to pick strategies. They're all more similar than they are different. When I first started off in strength and conditioning, I got really into various periodization strategies, whether that was linear, undulating, modified forms of conjugate, uh, Jim Wendler's 531. And really, all of these are far more similar than they are different. All we're talking about is changing the load and being strategic. I always say, Brianna, if I were to write a book on training, it would be one page and it would just be called train different, lift weights at different speeds, at different loads, in different ways, at different tempos, in different angles, different times a year. So I think people just really need to remember, begin with the end in mind. Your goal when writing a great program is to reduce the amount of variables that can negatively impact that. And complexity of any kind is going to be such a variable that you're not always going to be able to control. So, you know, A general rule of thumb is I think most workouts or training sessions should have five movements or less. I'm not talking about anything included in the warm-up or if you're doing intercept mobility. I just mean your actual movements. So for example, today I was working with NFL player Henry Anderson from the New York Jets. We did a push-jerk variation for his primary movement. We did some shoulder mobility in between just from an efficiency standpoint. And then it was a total body lift. So after that, we did a squatting variation paired with a one-arm dumbbell row. That was his next primary sequence of exercises. And then kind of that tertiary circuit, you know, we, we had already done a lower body push. So now we did a lower body pull. There was a glute ham variation. We did an upper body pull in the other circuit. So this one was an upper body push. This was a single arm overhead kettlebell press. And then we did a rollout. So push jerk, squat, dumbbell row, glute ham press, and a rollout, you know, so six Five to six or fewer exercises is huge. Um, and that, again, is for most people right now is like a new father. I'm lucky if I get two to three hard exercises in a training session, but it's just human nature. I mean, people need to understand that there's always more you can pull into a program, but it goes back to how they kind of talked about, I was reading a book on Michelangelo, the famous sculptor and painter, and they used to ask him, how was it possible that you carved this statue of David? And he said, it's simple whittle away everything that is not David. And I think that there's so much truth in that in regards to your programming. Get back to basics, fundamentals, not fluff, and make sure that you're optimizing the energy that your athlete or clients are going to be able to bring to that. And that's not going to happen with 20 exercises. Absolutely. I think it's so easy to get caught up in like this variety of exercise library and trying to almost be fancy that we forget that the basics are the basics for a reason and have been the foundation of strength and conditioning from the beginning of time. But I think that we do, especially like the people that I coach, they want to find these special exercises. And I think it's really just going off of what does the person in front of you need? And can we be efficient? What's the like quality over quantity here? I think A lot of the people I work with used to train two hours a day, and now they're like in a totally new phase of life and athleticism, and it's figuring out what should my program look like now that my life looks like this. And I feel like that's a a huge evolution, not just for the athlete, but also for the coaches that are working with these athletes. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's okay to have these massive drop down lists or these five. I mean, I have an exercise database. That's great, you know, but to feel like you have to put all these things in is outside pressure that you just need to ignore. Most people are not doing uh, things at the highest level they can be anyway to need the variety that most coaches think they need. And I always found that 
oftentimes coaches are the ones that get bored of coaching or teaching certain exercises prior or as opposed to the athletes getting tired of them. And what I mean by that is back when all I did was coach and I'd run seven to eight groups a day, I would start to get a little bit fancier with my programming at times because I, I don't know, it just felt like I was always teaching RDLs. I was always teaching right. trap bar deadlift squat. And then I realized, well, that's because I'm constantly exposed to these things seven or eight times a day, but each group of athletes I'm training is only doing that once, right? And they're not interacting with it until another week or another this. And so I think that's a lot of the issue with coaches is it's sometimes they program things that are really more for them than they are the individuals that they're training, you know, and, and you got to be careful with that. You've got to be careful of thinking just because you might want to inject a little variety and you might want to do this. You need to come back and be like, is this really what they need? Like, could I defend this? If somebody got hurt under your care, could you really defend what you're doing with them in a court of law? You know, is it really a necessity that you did the things that you did? And that doesn't mean you can't have variety. It just means, again, you need to have the majority of things that they need and all those, and then you can give them a little spice at the end. Totally. I think that's that's really the key is just sticking with the basics and then seeing how they perform, seeing what they enjoy, and then what's going to be really sustainable for this athlete and then help them meet their goal. And right. it's easy to want to get caught up in like, well, is this, is this too boring? Like, am I holding their interest and then getting really caught up in that? I know that's me as a coach. I try to avoid that thinking because I know basically that the program that we have in mind is really what's going to give us the most consistent results. But it is tempting to try to, well, what should I do now? But I do think that being able to improv, like what we talked about at your workshop as a coach is also a really key strategy for coaching in the moment. Can you talk a little bit about that? The key strategy for being able to adapt in the moment? Right. Yeah, I think it depends on the nature of the situation, right? I think coaches in general need to understand that effective leadership, effective coaching, when you look at what the literature says about that, comes down to adaptability. It comes down to being able to relate to the individuals that you're working with. And I know that sounds really easy, but the fact is, is most of us are really bad communicators. Most people think that just because they communicate every day that they're solid at it. But, you know, it's just like being in a relationship. You might wake up with a significant other every day. Does that mean you're necessarily a good spouse or a good boyfriend, girlfriend, what happened? No, like you have to work on relationships throughout your life. And I say that because when I wrote my book, Conscious Coaching on this, we had some blowback from coaches that were like, well, I already work with people every day. Why do I need a book on how to be better with it? And to me, that was paradoxical. That was a paradoxical way of thinking. Like, of course, if you work with people every day, you need to enhance your ability to communicate. That's, right. you know, again, like think how often, you know, all of you that are active, you, you lift weights, do you not continue to try to refine your form and technique? So what we had discovered is simply that out of 256 coach development programs or leadership development programs that are out there, less than 6% focus on any form of interpersonal skills. So I think just after years, Brianna, years and years and years of seeing interns that had come in when I was in the collegiate environment or when I worked at Athletes Performance. I mean, we would have four to eight interns every quarter. And I worked there, you know, about six years. So they were never lacking or rarely lacking in training knowledge. These people came in, they were college educated, uh, self-described nerds, they read the research, but you'd get them in front of a group of athletes, whether high school, pro, or even general population. And they just stutter and stammer and they weren't confident and they didn't have command and control over their tonality. And you realize, well, nobody teaches this stuff anymore. I mean, how many of you listening 
actually got training in any social skills related thing at college or any other point in your life. I mean, maybe less than 10% of you. So I think that's a big part of it is adaptability is the hallmark of effective coaching, but that comes from being put in situations where you're uncomfortable and you're given constraints that you may not expect to occur all the time. Absolutely. I think this is going to complement our next question really well, because what are three themes of communication that you think more coaches should consider implementing? Yeah. In, in my book, I talk about, you know, if you really want to will it down, it comes down to, I just call it the three R approach, research, mm-hmm. relate, and reframe. Now you could think of this as listening, relating, and influencing if you want. So research is just about everything you do as a communicator is about the listener. You know, you always need to craft a message that is pertinent to their needs, what they're saying. And there's a lot of different types of listening. It's not just active and passive. There's discernment type listening. So that's, imagine you're at your house and it's 1030 at night and all of a sudden you hear a big crash. Discerning types of listening is, what was that in my environment? Was that a dog howling? Was that, did I hear, was the floor creaking? You're paying attention to things externally. Then there's empathetic listening. Empathetic listening is when you're obviously trying to hear somebody out. You're trying to be there for them. It's this kind of relational-oriented endeavor. There is persuasive listening. That's where you know, you're hearing somebody give an argument or a statement, and you're really trying to be critical about breaking down the facts that they're saying. And different research will call these things different things. So there's six different forms of listening in and of itself. And I think most people... we're just, again, we're not good listeners. When people ask, how do I build buy-in or how do I do this? I'm like, well, what do you know about the individuals you work with? You know, what do you really know about their pains, their fears, their drives, their desires? What's their word choice that they use to describe these things? Not yours, because we can get caught up using jargon. So listening is critical. Relating, this is being able to give some level of self-disclosure. A lot of times coaches, trainers, whatever you might call yourself, you know, we ask so many questions about the people we serve and we get to see them at their worst and we get to see them when they're, you know, in these vulnerable positions, but they don't always know a lot about us. You know, they might know a little bit about the small talk and what have you, but how much do they really know about your failures? And I say that because, you know, I'd work with NFL guys that come from really tough backgrounds and they look at me as a five, eight white kid from Omaha, Nebraska that probably didn't know anything about their life. Well, you know, if they, when we actually got into discussions, I remember one was asking me about my family and what have you. And, you know, he'd asked me something critical. Well, when I was 15, I was hospitalized for a year of my life. And when I did an internship, my brother had gotten stabbed by a drug dealer. Like I might've grown up in Omaha, Nebraska, but I had a pretty interesting upbringing too. And so they'd hear this and they'd be like, damn, like you're not really what we thought. We, you know, a lot of people just see coaches and trainers as unrelatable, right? Because we, we always try to put on this front of like, Hey, we're very regimented. We have this, we have that. And So I just think people need to let their guard down a little bit. It doesn't mean you doctor fill it on the couch with them, but just be more real. And that can go a long way. And then finally, influencing, which people treat that like it's a bad term. You influence people every day. Anytime you ask somebody for a favor, anytime you alter a behavior or ask somebody to give more effort or anything like that, you're influencing somebody. Influencing can be defined as the psychological capability of creating change in an attitude, an outcome, or a behavior. And so when you look at that, listening, relating, influencing, or research, relate, reframe, however you want to phrase that, those are critical areas for you to be able to speak to the other person's needs, 
truly understand them at a deeper level and even let them understand you a little bit so you can build lasting rapport. That's so good. And I think it's really helpful to have that framework for a lot of coaches to come back to just as a point of reference for moving forward and improving their communication skills and overall leadership. So I do have a lot of coaches that, you know, imposter syndrome is thrown out all the time, not feeling good enough, kind of getting in their own way, not taking action because they're afraid of what other people are going to think. So how do you feel that coaches can maybe gain some more confidence in their leadership abilities and counter some of that imposter syndrome feelings? Yeah, I think it's the same way. So I used to box competitively and it's the same way that a lot of us as fighters had to gain confidence. You get in the ring more. Uh, you know, and I also think that there needs to be a reduction in this stigma of imposter syndrome or phenomenon being a bad thing. It's another thing I talk about in my book pretty in depth, but, you know, imposter phenomenon, and it goes back and forth of a lot of people refer to it that is because syndrome insinuates some kind of medical illness or anything like that. And so now they're referring to it as a phenomenon. But the point is, is it happens in some of the most successful people. It's especially prevalent, Brianna, in women that are STEM professionals in these technology and science-based fields. And it can be easy because when you're doing something really great and that it can help a lot of people, well, by and large, you're also going to compare your work to other people that are doing some pretty significant things. I mean, even when I wrote my book, it was easy for me to be like, all right, well, I'm not an author by trade, you know, but all of a sudden my book is going to be on Amazon and it's going to be fair game for it to be judged alongside books you know, that are classics, whether that's like Atlas Shrugged, you know, whether that's The Catcher and the Rye. And my book does not belong in those categories. You know, at the same time, you know, if imposter phenomenon wasn't a thing, what would really make us push harder? Because sure, it can have this inertial, stagnating effect of keeping people from getting started. But I don't really think that's imposter phenomenon doing that. I think that's a lot more than self-doubt. I think sometimes people just haven't discovered really the path they want to go with their project yet. So I think we got to get really clear on confusion, fear, and imposter phenomenon. But you know, you just got to get in the ring. You've got to take your legs. And I think you got to use it as fuel. Great. You don't feel like your work's up to par? Make it better. Uh, great. You feel like somebody's going to judge you? Guess what? That'll happen in life regardless. So there's really, there's really no danger in it. I think the only danger is just being stagnant and doing nothing. Absolutely. And that's what I tell all of the coaches is, you know, you just, you have to be up for the challenge, take the challenge and then get in your reps. Like that is going to be the only way that you start to even prove to yourself, nevertheless, other people that this is what you are supposed to be doing and you're actually doing a pretty good job at it. Yeah. And I mean, I can relate to it. I mean, you're somebody that you have some great online courses and I'm actually in the process of ideating one that I'm going to do. That's kind of a simpler course we have two flagship courses, but I'm going to do something. Similar. And I know what I want to do, but I haven't really started on it yet. Not because I have imposter phenomenon, but because just the idea of how I want to lay it out isn't clear enough yet to me. Now, perfectionism can be a, a pretty deadly thing. I also know that I could probably get started on the course and have some good content, but I always wake myself up at night thinking, oh no, we should do that, or that should be here, or this could have been better. So yeah, again, I just think perfectionism is way more dangerous than something like self-doubt, which can be fuel if you actually leverage it the right way. Like we need more people actually that are concerned about their work uh, because there's so many folks out there that are supremely confident just putting trash into the world because they're not self-critical right. enough. 
So then how would you say we could better counter that need to be perfect? Yeah, I just think looking at again, and it depends on the context, because I wouldn't use this phrase as a guide on everything, but done is the new perfect, you know, because Mm -hmm. you're never really going to get feedback on what could be better about your product or what you're doing if it's never out there. And so, I mean, listen, I look at this and this was an epiphany that I had, Brianna, not too long ago. Why worry about putting a perfect prototype out there when really the majority of the world isn't based on that? I have an iPhone and it gets updated, right? I like version whatever I had two years ago is not the same version I have now in terms of the software. Uh, My Mac constantly updates, you know, everything around us updates, you know, Netflix overnight will update and have new videos. And so like, just update what you're doing. You know what I mean? Your first rendition of it doesn't need to be perfect. And I think that's a critical thing. I, I try to take that attitude in the majority of my workshops now. And you saw that, you know, you saw how diligent I wanted to be about things. And that's good. I'm not saying like be lax and put crap into the world. I'm just saying that you have to put something out in the world or you're never going to get an output back. Oh, dude, totally. I have totally redone my coach course, Pregnancy and Postpartum Athleticism, because the first rendition was what I believed then. It was what I thought then. It was the content that I thought was what I wanted coaches to know back then. And I got so in my own head about putting anything out there in the first place that I got to the point where it was like, this just needs to exist. And if it exists, then I can find a little bit of peace because if it doesn't, it's just going to stay in my head and drive me crazy. Well, but then once it's released and it goes out into the universe and you start getting feedback and then you gain a little bit of growth and exposure and confidence, you can always update, like you said. And and that's why I have completely redone everything because I'm not the same coach as I was close to three years ago, right? And I think that we also have to give ourselves that permission of saying, you can put something out there and it doesn't have to stay out there as is in most cases. You can always evolve and get better or you can just own this own what you said then. And like, we're supposed to change. We're supposed to evolve and we're supposed to, you know, figure out more what we believe and who we are as professionals, the more time goes on. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. And so, yeah, I I just think that's critical. I think you got to get started on it. And I know that it's easier said than done. I wouldn't be giving that advice if I hadn't kind of put my own skin (laughs) in the game, but that you need to have the consequences. You need to have the ability to possibly fail and get ridiculed and all that. Otherwise, I mean, what's the alternative? That's what I say. Like, what's the alternative? Like, like how mad are you going to be at yourself if you do nothing and you just sit on it? And that's why they say that the area of earth, like the planet with the most riches is a graveyard because that's where people lie that, you know, didn't sing songs and that they could have sang and they didn't create art that they could have created. And they didn't make, you know, it's just, it's a lot of wasted potential because it gets really nerve wracking and nobody's ever going to have enough time either. You know, I think that's another thing of, no, I don't have time or I don't have the money or I don't have that. Like you never will. Nobody's ever going to have an abundance of these things. And there's always going to be stuff that creeps up. So just get with it and start working. Absolutely. Love it. So what are we, you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but what are some of the tactics to get buy-in and more retention of clients with working with moms, for example, I find it's a really tough crowd sometimes for them to totally buy into maybe making changes during their pregnancy or reintegrating and really progressing well postpartum. Um, There's not a whole lot of buy-in for a different way of doing things. So yeah, do you have any tactics you could suggest to coaches for uh, getting that retention? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of it we we chatted about just the idea of listening, relating, and influencing. I mean, you've got to learn as much about you know what the main barrier in their life is, and it's never what they initially tell you, right? Like they'll tell you, right. oh, it's this or it's that, and then you just got to ask more pointed questions. So I think the first tactic is you've got to get really good at understanding the cascade of strong questions. I think everybody knows typically you want to avoid yes no questions. Right, that's a great colloquialism, but you know, if you look at this spectrum of questions, there's so many ways you can frame a question. Why? How? What if? Uh, would you believe? Do you think? I, so we play a game and you came and you did it in the workshop called 20 questions where literally two people have to fire off questions at one another and reply with another question. So Brianna, why is important to you? Would you believe that buy-in is a critical factor in what I do? How do you describe buy-in? What if I have a hard time getting buy-in? Well, what do you have a difficult time with in particular, right? So like, I just think thinking of really critical questions, like people right now, while they're listening to this or after rather, can't write down 20 really strategic questions that they can ask the main demographic they're working with that's, you know, kind of they're trying to get out of this hole, then you're not thinking hard enough. And I don't mean to be rude, but that's just the truth. Questions and asking great questions are the key to building great conversations that allow you to get the information you need to then build buy-in. I think people also need to understand, and I talk about this in the book, in my in conscious coaching, it's one of the trust tenets of like give ground to gain ground. Like chill out, be patient. You don't need like this stuff isn't always gonna happen on our time. You know, I worked with a pain in the ass athlete that didn't really listen to what I had to say for almost three years. And then all of a sudden came around and year four is our best year working together. On the other hand, I have some athletes that listen within the first three minutes. All of that is okay. You know, it's that old Bruce Lee quote, the teacher appears when the student is ready. And I think, Brianna, if a lot of people were really honest with themselves, like everybody listening, think about something right now you just don't believe in. You're not convinced by. Think about it. You got something, right? Because everybody has a behavior that they're just not convinced changing it would matter and this and that. Mine, for example, is, you know, this classic early bird gets the worm, wake up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning thing. I appreciate all of you who are early birds. Did that once in my career, right? So there's no, there's nothing, there's no disdain there. But I happen to naturally be a little bit of a later night guy. And I promise this will make sense. I'll come back. Just hear me out. And, you know, most people say, well, you get a head start on the day, you get this. But here's the reality. Everybody's got the same 24 hours in the day. For me, nighttime is the only time I quit getting emails. I quit getting correspondence. My phone quits ringing because everybody else is with their family. And so night is actually when I'm most productive. It's the same when I travel. If I try to go down to the hotel fitness center in the morning, it's packed. However, if I go down there at 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night, almost nobody's there. Now, those things work for me. But somebody could tell me until they're blue in the face, oh, you'd get more done if you woke up at 4.30 or 5. I just don't believe that. Now, all of you have something you don't believe because you have something that already worked pretty well for you. Well, what would it take for you to buy into an alternative? And I say that because we often look at people that won't buy into what we're saying. We think, oh, how can they not do that? But then you also can't fall victim to what's called fundamental attribution error by ignoring the things that you're not doing. And so if you think about that, what would get me to change? Why, don't, why do I believe this? Um, if I did change, how would that approach need to happen? You'll get a lot of powerful insight on how you need to approach other people. Here's a hint. The thing that's going to influence behavior change the most 
are often things that are very indirect. Showing people stats and facts and all these things is not going to work. We saw that with the anti-smoking campaign in the 90s. You can tell everybody in the world smoking causes cancer. It's still going to be chain smokers out there. Most people are convinced by ideas they believe to be their own. And so give them space. Don't try to push these things. Master the art of indirect influence, and you will get a lot farther in helping people overcome their obstacle, which is usually themselves. I love that. That was so powerful. And I think that's going to help so many different coaches. Our last question is, what do you feel is the future of the coaching profession in general? Obviously, it's a really broad question, but where do you see it going? Yeah, I'm just really biased. I've seen the technology come and go. I've, I've had the blessing to work in world-class facilities. I've also worked in some that are not world-class, but you know, we're always going to get more and more tech. We're always going to get fancier you know, modalities and ways that we can train. I honestly think that the future in this is understanding more about social science, human behavior, and the art of ethical influence. I think at the end of the day, You can't coach unless you communicate. Literally, communication is the heart and the foundation of effective coaching. It's like trying to lift weights without external load. Sure, you can do body weight, but it's not going to be effective. I would love to see how somebody can be an effective coach without, you know, mastering some element of the verbal and nonverbal. I would love to see how somebody can effectively change behavior without taking an active interest. And I mean, these are. These are things that have destroyed empires. Miscommunications have caused kingdoms to crumble, relationships to fail, businesses to go under. Yet coaches often fetishize so many other things that they miss what is right under our nose. So I really do think the future of our field is everything we're trying to invest in, in the art of coaching as a company. It is enhancing your ability to communicate, connect, and build lasting buy-in with those you serve. So definitely biased. But that's my opinion. No, I totally agree. And I think that's our biggest influence is being able to communicate well. And then that makes all the actual tactics and X's and O's all so much easier to implement and have everything be sustainable. So Brett, where can we learn more about you and what what kind of courses and things do you do you offer? Yeah, really easy. One, you can just search my full name, brettbartholomew.net. Or you can go to artofcoaching.com. Just simple. Not the art of coaching, just artofcoaching.com. You'll have direct access to our podcast, our YouTube, my book, uh, our online community, anything like that. Uh, in regards to courses, we offer two flagships. One is called Bought In, and it is all about the science and application of what we just talked about today, Brianna, really how to get build trust change behavior, and in doing so, get better outcomes, right? Because if we have people who are committed and truly bought in, everything they're going to do is going to be at a higher level. So it's a combination of high-quality video, printouts, little mini quizzes, tips, guides. We have a whole archetype manual that breaks down 16 common archetypes of personalities you're going to notice when you're coaching or leading others, the full spectrum. We also have an online course called Valued. And uh, it is, of course, ultimately about how coaches can better manage their career. None of us are really taught, or very few of us, rather, are ever really taught how to manage our finances, how to network appropriately, how to avoid burnout, which is a huge factor in our field, uh, how to manage contracts, how to just manage growth in our career. So valued as a blueprint for a coach or any leader, even though I use the term strength and conditioning in these courses, of course, it's just 
it's like anything, right? I can read a book by a Navy SEAL and I don't have to be a Navy SEAL to apply it. So it's for any leader who wants to manage their career and have a long-term sustainable path to be more successful so they can help more people. Awesome. Well, you are so intelligent and you have created some incredible resources for coaches and all different leaders and athletes. So I really appreciate you being on with us today. Thank you so much. That's my honor. Thanks for everything you do, Brianna. I appreciate you. This episode of the Practice Brave podcast was brought to you by Strength.com and their line of clean, natural, and NSF certified for sport nutrition products built by Strength. If you're looking for effective supplements that are safe for pregnancy and breastfeeding, head to Strength.com for 25% off your first order. Use code PRACTICEBRAVE. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Talk to you soon.